0: Welcome back to Pro Corner. It's good to be back from the little break that I took the last couple months. And I'm really excited for today's guest, Rowdy Gaines. If you're in the swimming community, you know who Rowdy is. He's the voice of swimming for the last 30 plus years, Olympic gold medalist, and one of the greatest personalities in the history of our sport. I wanted to have him on um, because he basically set the tone for what it means to be a pro in swimming. He was the first professional swimmer to really hit it big in his era. And he discusses the differences between the money he made before the Olympics in 1984, and then what he actually made afterward. And it's a pretty stunning difference. Um, he's the first one to parlay that swimming success in the modern era into things like broadcasting and other opportunities in that realm, um, We're going to get to him in a sec, but I just want to let y'all know I'm playing with the format a little bit. This week is going to be part one of the episode where we just discuss Rowdy's swimming career. And then next week, we're going to dig more into his broadcasting career. Um, I'm going to keep doing this if I find a natural way to split each episode because I'd like for the episodes to be more digestible. I mean, uh, the most interesting person in the world it's still hard to sit down and listen to them for two hours. So trying to cater the audience, I understand that you guys have things to do besides sit around for two hours and listen to me talk to somebody. So I'm gonna make them a little bit shorter and hopefully that means more digestible. I'm also gonna be talking less in these introductory spiels. Um, You guys are here to listen to Rowdy Talk, not me. So let's get right to it. Without further ado, here's my guest, Rowdy Gaines. Ready to go? Ready. All right. I'm here with Ratty Gaines, um, Olympic gold medalist and the voice of swimming for what thirty years now.
1: Oh, I don't know about the voice, but I've been doing it for I don't know, Austin since. I guess my first job was 1985. So yeah, 30, 35 years. 30, right. 35 years.
0: The Voice is swimming for 35 years from undisclosed location in a hotel in Budapest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, deep in the throes of the ISL playoffs. And I imagine uh, coming off a very exciting match where the LA Current advanced to the finals. Uh, Rowdy, how are you doing today?
1: Good, Austin. I'm doing great, man. It's uh, we're in the home stretch for sure. Way over the hump, and that's uh, it's kind of nice. And, and, and I, I've loved every single second of it. But it's you know I miss my family, and it's going to be fun to get home.
0: Yeah, a part a part that not everybody considers when they watch this and they hear about the athletes and the coaches having to go over there quarantine be in this bubble for six plus weeks is that everyone else involved has to be a part of that too, including yourself, including the production team. So how has that experience been so far? How, how has your, your announcing season been and how would you compare it to seasons in the past? Or I should say last well, season and other events in the past.
1: Yeah, you're right, Austin. It, well, it's, it's, a, it's a 180, obviously. The only thing I can compare it to somewhat is the Olympic Games because we are in a bit of a bubble At the Olympics for other reasons but literally for like 10 days we live and breathe swimming at the pool 18 hours a day at least every day so it's sort of like that we do have off days here Um, my experience has been nothing uh, but excellent in every sense of the term Um, I cannot complain whatsoever first of all if you complain at all you're complaining about first-world problems we have a lot bigger problems in the world than for me to complain about the hotel food. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. to even think that, um, the, the, the ISL folks have been great. They've been very strong on safety. Uh, we get tested every four days. We, uh, you know, we're in this cocoon. We wear our masks everywhere in the hotel at the pool everywhere, but the actual broadcasting booth and Bernie and I are six feet apart. So it's, it's, um, it's been really great. Uh, I think it's been great for the kids, certainly good for swimming and uh, put some money in in the kids' pockets, which is really what it's all about.
0: That is something that I focus on a lot in this podcast is the ISL changing the landscape of swimming to where more people can visualize themselves making a career, making money from swimming. So since we're getting into the nitty gritty, how do you compare the ISL as an actual product being someone who's been on the media and production side of swimming for 35 years? How would you compare it to something like the Olympics or maybe an NCAA championships?
1: Well, I would certainly rate the production value as an a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would compare it on par with the Olympic broadcast as far as production value. Um, and I say that with some trepidation because the Olympics is a completely different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll I'll just give you a, 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 an example. Um, normally at the Olympics we have 32, 33 cameras that we have at our um, at our use. We can use any one of those thirty three cameras. We have thirty six here, mm-hmm. so it's it's uh, they've spared no expense to create. Um, a vision, hopefully for that television audience. I think it's still a learning process because I will certainly say the Olympic actual production of itself, um, the broadcast is, is second to none, Tommy Roy and, and all the great directors, of, uh, you know, it, they're, they're the epitome of perfection. But I will tell you, Michael Shames and uh, all of our crew here have done just an incredible job to be able to bring this to life. Short course meters is obviously completely different than long course. Um, so there's a lot more bells and whistles that go along with it. A lot more intimate action, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been great. I mean, uh, everything has uh, been awesome. The, the light show. Um, I mean it's crazy we're I'm trying to work on austin I'm trying to get this to come to orlando next year of course i don't I think that might be a secret, but I just let it out obviously but uh um, anyway, I'm trying to get it to come to the United States and um I was trying to look at all the production stuff that needs to go with this, and it's like thirteen production trucks um, that's semi trailer trucks mm-hmm. it's 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 big big, big, big stuff
0: and to compare to Maybe one that's easy to compare to for scale, you know, big 12 championships, something that I competed in every year. When I was at Texas, there was one semi truck, right? So that's the small end is that I'm focusing just on the trucks for a sec, just to give everyone a sense of scale. How does that size compare to an NCAA championships or, or an Olympic trials, even not even the Olympic games, like how much bigger is that? Is that, Physical load that's required.
1: Well, at NC two A's, that's a good example. NC two A's, um, SECs. I've never done Big Twelve, SECs, Big Tens, ACCs. All our U.S. Opens usually involve one truck. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's a big production truck. You know, it's huge, um, but it's just one truck. Uh, the Olympic Trials, we
0: probably have three or four. Um, and so we're and talking. So, we're yeah. talking considerable orders of magnitude yeah. more that goes into this production process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you have to remember, we also, um, it, 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 it's an Olympic in scale only because, um, well, I shouldn't say only because there's probably several reasons, but we're broadcasting to, you know, 40 or 50 different countries as well. So, there are a lot of different production teams from other mm. countries here. Um, but we, you know, we are covering, you know, with the BBC and I think it's seven in Australia and, um, uh, I know the European network is here. I can't remember the name of it, but, um, so we, we've got, we've got a lot of different, uh, production teams that are involved with it, but, mm-hmm. and, and, they, and, but they all center around the ISL. It's all the ISL. So it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. I'll put it in layman's terms
0: uh i want to focus on briefly on your job and how you would compare it to other meets because not only is the isl a singular experience for people watching but there's also nobody in the crowd and i have to imagine that changes the dynamic just a little bit for you so how does how does this bubble affect how you feel your job needs to go uh day to day because i watch and i hear the same excitement from you but i have to feel like and, and guess that it's a little bit different in how you're carrying yourself these days.
1: And and, and I'll be 100% honest with you Austin. Mm-hmm. No no difference whatsoever. Okay. Because I can I can't hear anyway. But right, okay. you've got your headphones on. You, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to hear a crowd anyway. I've never can hear the crowd even at the Olympics or okay. an NCAA's. I, I can hear nothing. But but the sound in my ear, we have really good headphones, which block literally they're like Bose headphones that just block everything out. So the feel for me is the energy that happens in the water mm. and with the team itself. And what I see is what you see. My hearing is basically what you're hearing. I hear the kids. I hear the splashing. I hear the, uh, the turns. I, 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 I'm, I'm not hearing the, the crowd. I never do. So for me, it really hasn't changed the emotion of my voice or changed the way I feel about the races. I don't have to manufacture the emotion is what I'm saying. I mean, it's just, that's the way I am, dude. I mean, I, I get that excited over prelims at the Olympics when, you know, the place is dead in in China, you know, I, I just, I can't hear them anyway. So, um. Uh, there's really not uh, there's no difference whatsoever now you know before and after you you obviously can feel that and you get a sense of that but but once those headphones go on man and we start broadcasting it I'm all in on what I'm seeing that you're seeing
0: and we're gonna dig more into that later Uh, just a a day in the life of you preparing but before we do that um, I want to tell your story I want to take me people through a specific time in your life uh, when you were a professional swimmer. So, just to set the stage, and we don't have to dig too much into this because it's been picked over. And I think you've done a really awesome job of telling your story on this part. Uh, 1980, you make the Olympic team and they didn't go. You had another year at Auburn University, your senior year, and then you turned professional. So, what was that time period like for you? You finish up your senior year. Um, you have three years left. You mentioned on Brett Hawkes' podcast that you were a big part of why you're doing it is lifelong. And you didn't want to regret it later on. What were what were the mechanics behind that decision making? What what was what were you going through? Let's say that April of 1981, um, when you were deciding who you were going to be for the next three years.
1: Well, if you back up just a second and, okay. and understand that you, you know, when you say professional you have to use that term loosely in 1981 because there really wasn't professional swimming in 1981. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, in 1981, you weren't allowed to accept money. Um, so even though I technically turned pro, I still was, it was still, I was still under the kind of what we feel like the NCAA auspices is right now because you weren't allowed to take money. Mm -hmm. Um, after 19, Probably mid-1982 was when we were allowed to accept money as a professional, but we still had to funnel it through the sport itself. So when I did a swim clinic, they didn't write the check to me. They wrote the check to USA Swimming. And then USA Swimming would pay me out of a kind of a trust fund that they had set up for expenses only. Um, So it wasn't like I was getting rich from turning pro is my, my point. I didn't of have course. a swimsuit there was no swimsuit contract. There were mm-hmm. no appearances or anything like that. I, I made probably after I my senior year in eighty one, between there and that two and a half years into the Olympics, I probably made I don't know, outside the pool doing clinics and a couple mall appearances, probably about fifteen hundred dollars in that two and a half years. I think so there there wasn't okay. pro swimming for sure.
0: Uh two things from that number one is isn't a question it's more something that I think about. I think we take for granted that the Olympic sports don't have um kind of like a set idea of what a pro is because of the DNA going back to these are these Olympic sports you had to be an amateur like you talked about. And I imagine that's why sports like football that weren't in the Olympics it was just straight to capitalism but for swimming The tradition goes all the way back to an athlete's amateur and it rippled, you know, 20, 30 years all the way until I would say this decade is when they started shaking the rust off and really providing monetary opportunities to swimmers. But the second piece is I want to talk about your identity. Despite that, did you ever think of the word professional when you identified yourself or how would you describe yourself to people in that time period? I know it seems silly, but. Identity is a big part of what we have to carry with us as swimmers.
1: That's a great question. Um, I would, yeah, I think I would consider myself, well, no, until the middle of 1983 Austin. So, no, I did not consider myself professional because, again, there was no such thing as the term Uh, professional. I didn't make money. So, I just... I was a post-grad is the way I, that, that we, that's what we called ourselves. I was, I was training at Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there after I graduated from Auburn in, in 1982 and, you know, um Eddie was there and Richard was there. And so I had the best of, of all worlds. But during that time period, I was training with the guys like William Paulus and Clay Britt and some of the Texas legends. Um And we were, Postgrads. We never called ourselves professionals. When I started thinking professional was the beginning of 19, maybe the end of 1983, I flew to Washington, D.C. and met with a, um, an agency. Um, back then it was called Advantage International. They turned into ProServe, which is now um, Octagon. And I was the first swimmer to sign with an agent. So I guess when I signed with that agent at the end of 1983, that's where I really started thinking, gosh, I'm I'm a pro. <laughs> I guess I'm a pro. I just signed with an agent. And uh, so, um, and then I I talked Steve Lundquist, who was another Olympic gold medalist from 1984, into coming to D.C. about a week later. And we flew up together about a week later. He signed with, with uh, Octagon. And we were kind of off and running on preparing for, what could be after 1984 and my agent my manager and you know that term is kind of a dirty word sometimes but my agent at the time parks Britton, he did such a great job in putting the word out to all these different companies that if he breaks it if he comes in and wins a gold medal here's what um is in store for you and that's what happened like i said before that i didn't make any money but after the olympics I I mean I, I from from 1984, after the Olympics, uh, until the end of 84, that five, six-month period, I probably made $50,000. That's unbelievable. And again, that two, two and a half years beforehand, I made $1,500. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was night and day. And $50,000 may not seem like a lot of money to professionals now, but boy, it was all the money in the world to me back then
0: uh sounds like a lot of money to this professional swimmer yeah I know, I know i know supporting with it's still a pretty amazing thing especially relative it, the delta between that and the two years you had leading up where a you called yourself a postgrad it probably almost i don't know if it was a case of you didn't know what you didn't know or if you almost feel like you didn't have access to the term pro and then all of this just right. floods into your life that must have been amazing um it was I have to give my own observation on that. I see so many ripples from your experience all the way down to when people like myself were a swimmer. I mean, Octagon ended up being the agency that Michael Phelps went with. So the swimming tradition goes all the way through there. And people like myself, were calling ourselves post-grads even in 2013, 2014, 2015. So I'm just, I'm constantly seeing the common threads that kept swimming in this dark nebulous place of what 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 does it mean to be a pro um but i want to yeah. dig into your decision to leave auburn and go to texas so okay. you were coached by eddie reese your freshman year he goes to texas right and then you got to swim for richard quick for your next three years Correct. and he, he goes to texas to take over the women's team So what were you thinking about when Richard left and what, was there a a possibility that you would stay or was it, man, I got to follow my coach.
1: Um, Both times uh, I I thought about uh, staying and leaving when Eddie left my freshman year. um, I certainly, I was, I had packed my bags. In Mm -hmm. fact, I had packed everything up. Drew Dunworth, who you may know Drew was Mm -hmm. my roommate at Auburn. My freshman year, he transferred and went with Eddie Still lives in Austin to this day. Um, and uh, I, was, I was going. But Richard came in, and, you know, it's a long story. But, I, you know, I fell in love with the guy. He, he just – he was somebody that, uh, that I felt like uh, was – really could make that transition from Eddie. And I felt very comfortable with him. And I loved Auburn. I loved the campus. And I didn't want to leave Auburn. I, it's just I loved Eddie. Mm -hmm. I still do, obviously. Um, And uh, so I just felt like it was the best decision for me personally to stay. Um, And then when Richard left, John Asmuth, who was the assistant coach at the time, had taken over Richard's position. And I love John as a great friend, but I just didn't think he would be the person to take me to that that level of the Olympic Games. So Mm -hmm. I I felt like, you know, when Richard left, it was pretty easy because I was graduating three months later. And, uh, I had the best of both worlds. I had Richard and Eddie and which for the next two years, that's what I did. You know, I'd swim with Richard one day and I'd swim with Eddie one day and kind of just go back and forth. And they, they got along great. And, and they, there would, there were no jealousies. It was like, I mean, Eddie kind of knew that I was Richard's guy and Richard said, you really need to go swim with Ed today. I, 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 I need to, you know, concentrate on the women or I got a set that just doesn't match up with you. And, And so for me, it was just perfect. Eddie could not have been nicer and sweeter. And plus he had a men's post-grad team too. So I kind of hung out with the guys. It was nice. But I love swimming with the girls too. They kicked my butt (laughs) every
0: day. (laughs) How would you compare the two styles? Because despite both being legends and unequivocally two of the best that's ever coached, uh, Richard and Eddie are very different people. So what do you remember specifically from your experience as an athlete about the two of them that you compare and contrast in your mind?
1: Well I think I think Eddie obviously with his sarcasm and his uh sense of humor uh is is he was always funnier than Richard you know. Uh, Richard tried Richard was one of those things where he always tried to be funny but he wasn't you know. We'd kind of laugh at the fact that he'd make jokes and he he wasn't funny. Eddie was you know genuinely funny you know you you would just <laughs> he he was just uh executed um um uh, you know a, a great sense of humor and still has that to today, obviously if anybody knows Eddie and uh, and Eddie um, but I will tell you Austin Eddie and Richard were very similar in many ways that that was one difference and I think Richard was much more intense mm-hmm. you know on the deck you know kind of a yeller screamer not in a bad way but he was kind of a cheerleader so he would be much more like that on the deck than Eddie um, but they but they both kind of I, I don't want to say flew by the seat of their pants. I, I think in their mind they knew exactly what they what they wanted when they came in. But they were really good at making adjustments accordingly to mm-hmm. see how the how the kids were feeling, how we were doing, uh if we were kind of down on dumps mentally or emotionally, physically we weren't having a good day. They, they they would they were so good at making adjustments. Um and I think that's one I mean Richard's been gone now for gosh, almost 10 years now, I guess. But, um, you know, that's, that's what Eddie still continues to do this day. And that's why he's arguably the greatest coach in history is because he's he he's he has the foresight to be able to make those kinds of adjustments.
0: Those adjustments are, that's the next part I want to dig into. Your training setup, again, common threads, uh, your training setup actually reflects what's happening today at the ISL where I talked to Tate Jackson of the the Cali Condors, and mm. Eddie, Eddie and Wyatt of Texas are his primary coaches, but he basically sees the training there as a buffet for himself, so one day he might do a practice from Eddie and Wyatt, one day Eddie might have Jaunty, his head coach on the Condors, um, write a workout for him, one day he might slide in with a group of people that swim at NC State because they're doing a butterfly workout, whatever it is, and that's a contrast that we talked about to just having a primary coach and you do exactly what they do every single day down to the letter and that's what you have to do. And it sounds like you had that setup up for yourself where I guess Richard, you would say, was your coach. If you went to a meet and someone asked you who your coach was, you would say Richard. But you kind of flowed back and forth between him and Eddie based on a partnership they had and what you needed. So what do you what do you remember about the mechanics of that relationship? When you would have, say, a meeting about your goals, were you talking to Richard? Were you talking to Eddie? Were, was there a three-way conversation that was happening? What was, what was that three-way partnership like for you specifically?
1: Uh, well, it's a good question. You know, I think primarily, you know, I talked to Richard. Uh, you know, Eddie, Eddie was, you know, he was certainly zero. So was Richard. But Eddie was really zeroed in on that college team, you know. Mm-hmm. That post-grad team, all of us, it wasn't just me. It was all the other Texas kids, too. Right. Texas kids. I call them kids now. It was us. So it was Texas guys. Um, we were all I, – I wouldn't say an afterthought, but, you know, you were there. You've been there. You know, the post-grads during college season, you know, I'm sorry, especially in 1981 82, or 82, 83, you know, even 84, you know, it's you, you're, you're going to take a back seat to – what they're there, what they're hired to do. And that's coach college kids, you know, they're not, they're, they're not hired there to coach us. And so, um, you know, I think for me, because of my relationship with Richard going, moving to Austin and during that three year period or four year period, I had built a, a much more serious relationship with him as far as being um, intimate in our conversation. So um, not that I didn't have great conversations with Eddie and great um, life lessons, but when it came down to strategy and talking about what we needed to accomplish that week or that month or that meet, you know, it it was, it was definitely Richard. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I always felt like, you know, uh, again, I had the two gods of swimming um, with me. So I always felt so blessed to have both of them. Mm -hmm. And I always felt so blessed to have both of them who got along, you know, they weren't like a mom and dad in a divorce where you felt like, Oh my gosh, I'm talking to Richard. What Eddie thinking or vice versa? You know, yeah. I never worried about that. So it was really for me, that meant a lot to me. And I think, uh, they had that kind of relationship, uh, at the time anyway, um, that, uh, you know, I never knew if it was anything different, I never knew it. And mm-hmm. so, but you know, it, 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 those hall of famers that, uh, get inducted into a hall of fame and they say, uh, you know, who, who are you going to have uh induct you? It it, it would it would be Richard, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but he's not with us anymore. So I would love to have Rich uh, have Eddie do it. <laughs> uh, but again, but it, I'm splitting hairs a little bit, Austin, because it's uh, both of them are just so amazing.
0: Well, hair splitting is what we're all about. I really like, <laughs> I really like, that you knew at the time that it was a swimming mecca, because it's really easy to look back and see those things um, with thirty five years of hindsight, but we don't always know that in the time. So the fact that you guys were there, you had this awesome postgrad group, you had now we know for sure two of the greatest coaches of all time it's really it's really special that you knew that in the moment too, and I imagine that added to your confidence in your training and your confidence that you were going to achieve your goals while you were there. So goals is the next part that I want to talk about. Did they change year to year from 82 onward? Because you went to 83 worlds, were you looking towards 83 or were you looking past that towards 84? Um, I guess the the main question I want to know is what was your goal setting process as a pro and how did it change?
1: Well, for me it was really, uh, and, and, of course, it's easier said than done, Austin, but, you know, the goal always for, was for me tomorrow or today, Okay. and just, just get through today, survive today, um, I, I tried not to think too much about the Olympics, and that didn't work all the time, trust me, um, the, the stress and the pressure of that certainly got to me many times, but on a day-to-day basis, man, I'm just trying to get through workouts, man, I, <laughs> you know how it is, dude, okay. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like, holy crap, you're feeling like crap or you got a little shoulder problem or you've got a sore throat or you know you feel great and you look forward to the next day you're getting up at five thirty. You have no desire to do so i'm just trying to get through each and every day okay um the world championships were actually the summer of 1982 oh 82 Our excuse big, me yeah no 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 but the big meet in the summer of 83 for us back then was the pan-american games remember mm-hmm. the world championships were only four years every four years back then so it wasn't every two years and so the Pan Ams back then, we, we normally take our B team now, but back then it was definitely the A team. All the best swimmers went to Pan Ams. That's all we had that summer. So, um, so for me, it would, those were the type of goals that, you know, you tried to shoot for. You go, okay, you know, we're training for the World Championships. We're training for Pan Ams. Uh, and then everything kind of in between just fell in place. Uh, I will tell you that 83 was the toughest year because we didn't swim in many meets, you know, um, and that's why the ISL is such a blessing, because I, I think you've got to get up and race to be any good. And I sucked in 1983. And I think a big reason for that was I didn't swim a lot. Of, I didn't race very much. I trained a lot, trained my ass off, but I didn't, I didn't race very much. Uh, and so uh, I was not very good at Pan Ams, not very good in 83. And so Richard made the conscious decision, hey, we're going to we're going to compete a lot in 1984. And that that helped me helped me tremendously. So those were the kinds of goals, you know, to try to figure things out, to take risks. Eddie and Richard were never afraid to fail. You know, they always took risks. And again, I think that's a, a sign of, of greatness is uh, that, you, that you are not afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. A, growth, um, and, mi- a uh, growth
0: mindset that even if you make a mistake, there's always the next time.
1: Absolutely. And they were certainly willing to make mistakes with taper. Um, with, like I said, and Richard said, Hey, we're going to bust our butt here in 83. Um, I think he had a grand plan, but we're going to compete a lot more in 84, but I need to have you, um, set. So you, you know, if we go to trials, you can rest eight weeks and and you'll have some in the bank and you'll be able to rely on that great background, at least mentally.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about your day to day life when you were in Austin, um, and I mentioned in our in our little production email that we were shooting back and forth that i was hoping you would talk about your time as a night clerk at a hotel Uh, (laughs) something that you've talked about before um but i I really want to dig into it what was what was your daily life like where you have practice sometimes you have two practices sometimes you have weights and then the time when most swimmers conk out and go to bed uh you were going to work you were working all night and then sleeping all day in between your workouts i mean were you essentially nocturnal during this time period? Did you just flop your sleep schedule for two years or how did that work? Yeah,
1: pretty much. I, and that, and, and you get, you, listen, life is about routine. You know, you, mm-hmm. you get in a routine of doing something and it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot worse than it really was. I, I, you know, again, it, it beats digging ditches the way I put it. And, and, uh, it, it, it really didn't turn out to be that bad it's certainly the first month or so it was it was not it was not any fun um there were many many days of of like what am i doing but i had to survive man i didn't have any money dude and i didn't you know i i could have turned to my parents but i when i left high school i never did ask for a penny from my parents for anymore and i wasn't about to start as a as a postgrad and so yeah, I got the way, I mean, you know it, it's the Hyatt. I think it's still a Hyatt right there in Austin. You know, mm-hmm. it's right there on a lake, I think right off of I-35. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was a Hyatt back then. And, uh, and I got the job through back then. It was called the Olympic job opportunities program. And, uh, and for me it was, it, it was a, just a sense of survival to be able to do the kinds of things that I, that I needed to do to live comfortably as far as nutrition, mainly just just so I could eat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that was a big thing. I, I needed I needed money to eat, um, and um, so yeah, the daily routine would be morning practice and then sleep all day and then uh, afternoon practice and then I had the uh, it, it it varied but you know eight p.m. to three a.m. shift. You know sometimes it was nine to three and they, they sometimes let me come in later. I could leave a little earlier. Um, back then they were very, very, um, um, agreeable to, you know, a schedule, but, you know, on average it was six to eight hours every night. And, um, and I just got used to being, I I guess what you said, nocturnal in a sense, obviously, but I got used to sleeping two different times, you know, sleeping four hours here and then sleeping four hours there. That's the kind of, I said, if I can just get seven, eight hours a day. And then on my days off, sleep 16 hours, which I did. (laughs) You know, we all did, right? You did too. I mean, you go to sleep Saturday (laughs) night, you may not wake up till four o'clock in the afternoon the next day, which I did many times.
0: Do you have any stories of anything you saw or experienced when you were a night manager? Because I have to imagine, even though Austin was a little bit different than from it is in 2020, um, it's still the nighttime. You still had two years um, as a night clerk to see a lot of stuff going on and Austin was still a town of nightlife and music back then. So what'd you see? Dude,
1: I, 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 oh my gosh, I could tell you stories that would curl your blood. Um, (laughs) yeah, no, I saw, I saw men, you know, coming in at 2am and checking in with a, you know, a a 60 year old man checking in with a 20 year old woman or whatever. I don't know what the age was, but you could tell it was, it was just, gross. Um, um, but, uh, and then I had many, many people that, uh, many kids actually, I say kids, you know, it seemed like college kids that would come in and they were in no condition to drive or anything. And they said they had come from the bar up on sixth street and walked to the hotel and got a room for the night. Or, um, I, I had, I saw, um, um, I didn't see it. I had come in right after a guy robbed the front desk. Oh, wow. So Yeah. Yeah. Come somebody came in, robbed the front desk and uh, and I had i had taken over that ship. So it happened. Um, I can't remember exact details and time and stuff, but uh, I remember the police were all around and everything. So it was kind of kind of, you know, exciting. And then uh, you know,
0: you see nothing this. like
1: that ever happened with me, though. No, no, no. I never had any. I I never had any problems. I I had to help people up to the room mm-hmm. uh, a lot. You know that were, were you know that had too much to drink, so I did have to do that a lot because they didn't know where they were at. They could barely stand, so I'd have to escort them up to the room.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but really, it was pretty boring, dude. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure. overall, it was you know, it was, it was pretty monotonous.
0: Well, boring's important when you don't want a ton of distractions in your life, and you're just trying to streamline two years towards your right. final Olympics. Um, let's talk about eighty-four because it was a pretty incredible Olympics. Um, your story there, again, it's an, something you've done an amazing job of telling for a long time. But I do, I do want to dig into it because. Um, I, had, I had the opportunity to talk to Cali Condors GM, Jason Lezak, and for example, his story is one of many people's stories that this Olympics on his home soil was such an impactful event for him as a kid, and him specifically, he was a California native, he got to go to the meet and watch you guys swim, and it just set the stage for the whole rest of his life from there. So, the first question I want to ask is, what was it like competing on your home soil? Was that, was that something that significantly raised the stakes for you or made it more important to you?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. No question about it. And, and especially because we didn't have um, uh, an Olympics in 1980 to be able to kind of come home, uh, so to speak, was really critical in in the goal setting along the way. You know what I mean? It was like, um, we knew that this was gonna be a chance to be able to do something special in our in our home country in front of a home crowd. And you know, if you look at the history of the Olympics, and I was a real historian of the sport. Uh literally the day I started swimming was the day I went to the library and checked out all these books on swimming. I I read Fifty Meter Jungle by Mark Spitz, and I read Don Scholander's Deep Water, and I you know, Science of Swimming by Doc Councilman. I mean, I read everything. Uh, about swimming when I first started. And the reason I mentioned that is I read about the history of the Olympics and the athletes that got to perform in their home country always excelled better than when they competed in another country, right? Traditionally, the home country always performed better, always won more medals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I knew that we were certainly capable of doing that swimming at home. I knew that was going to be an easy two or three tenths for me, um, you know, it was going to be two or three tenths for my fellow um, mate, uh, Mike Keith, too, but I knew that we had an advantage. I knew the U.S. had an advantage swimming at home, so that, that made it more important, even more important to be able to try to make the team.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's focus on that, on that swim that you had against Mike Keith. The day you won gold, um, what, do, what do you remember from that day? What do you remember about your preparation that day and what you were thinking about specifically?
1: Well, a lot of it was obvious fear. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I was scared to death. (laughs) You know, it's the Olympics, you know, this is like an eight year journey. And I'm, you know, I'm nervous, uh, very, very nervous and couldn't sleep the night before. And uh, just like all of us, you know, we peeing every 10 minutes, you know, you just, (laughs) you can't, you know, you just, the nerves are there, the, the butterflies, but I, I, again, I tried to control it as much as possible. Um, the thing I remember the most, Austin, was um, Richard had to have had to change my start um, because of um, this this starter in the Olympics. This is a long story, but in in short, this starter that started the Olympics potentially that could start my race, which was the third day was very quick on the gun basically take your mark go and if you ever watch the video of my race you can see they two or three guys weren't even down Mm and we sounded the the gun so i was traditionally very slow coming down too and richard said you know we've got to change it we you've got to come down fast or else you have the potential to get left on the blocks and you know for seven years i've been doing this same start yeah and literally it was the day before so he and I, you know, went over to the practice pool and worked about a half an hour on coming down and the cadence of coming down quick. And, and believe it or not, that's one of the big reasons why I won. So a lot of that day you're talking about, getting back to your question, that day was, you know, kind of going through my race in my head and, and uh, like swimming it over and over again, which I had done up to that point. But really the start itself, um, because once you're swimming, you know, it, everything, it, there is no strategy. You know, the strategy, it shouldn't be strategy. The whole strategy really happens before the race. And you just, you let that, that, you know, you let that adrenaline take over from there. Um, And, uh, and that's what, for me, that's, that's primarily what I did. You know, I could, I know this sounds really stupid, but I used to, I wasn't a big visual, visualization guy. But the one thing I would try to do, Austin, I would always try to um, swim my r- race in my head, uh, that 100-meter race. And I would, I would have the ability to close my eyes, start a stopwatch, swim my race, knowing exactly how I would breathe, going down and coming back, and stop the stopwatch. And I'd always stop it within two or three-tenths of a second of what I wanted to be able to swim. So I knew how I was going to swim that race um, to 20- the T.
0: Well, let's talk about that. And maybe not on the day going over your strategy with Richard, but when you were in practice getting ready for that, what was the strategy that you trained and how did you execute it on the race? Because obviously adrenaline took over. I get that. Um, yeah. But what was the work that went into that strategy?
1: Well, for me, I, I think I, I, I mean, not to get too technical, but I had not swum very well in the 100th, the two years leading up to that. Um, I swam great in the morning, but really failed miserably at night on almost every single race, prelims and finals. I'd be great in prelims and terrible in the finals and um, for about two years. And so that had mentally started um, hurting me. And so we decided from a strategic standpoint, we needed to uh, take a risk. Mm -hmm. And that meant in the morning at the Olympics, I needed to lay off my legs as much as possible and not worry about being in the middle of pool and being seated first, just get a lane. You know, he said, it doesn't matter whether you're seventh or eighth because in the hundred free, you don't look very much anyway. You kind of get a sense of where everybody is. Mm -hmm. So that was the strategy going into those Olympics during training camp was lay off my legs as much as possible that first fifty and don't put my legs into it the second till the second fifty. And I was seated fourth or third. I was seated third. Um, but I got out of that prelims and I oh I just felt great. Right. My legs felt great, you know? And I just knew that I had a lot left in my legs, which which helped me that night. And um and, and that was a big difference um, because so, in the prelims, always leading up to that, I was just over kicking everything in the prelims. I had nothing in my legs left at night.
0: So really the big swing happened before finals even started. It was the risk. of Oh yeah. So you had to have known once you got out of the pool, this is mine now. Like I have spent so much less than everybody else. And you, it's almost like something you had in your pocket. It's an edge you had over everybody.
1: Definitely mentally. I wasn't, I wasn't, Absolutely positive. I mean, there were always, you know, you always have doubts. Of course, you try to block course. out of your head, you know. But I did feel really good, and I took a long nap. You know what? You ever nap between prelims and finals? It's the best feeling, right? Uh,
0: yeah, it's all I, I nap every day, man. <laughs> I love, dude. Naps.
1: It's isn't it the greatest? If you if you can do it, sometimes you. I I couldn't do it sometimes because of the nerves, you know. But I took a nice long nap. I took like a two-hour nap, um, and it was just great. It just. I know that sounds corny but it just it it just really helped it recharged the engine so to speak i knew i had my legs they weren't sore at all uh and um
0: it also helps you it also helps you package up what just happened so you have this your uh prelim swim or your uh the swim before the finals when you take a nap you can almost package it up as something that happened to an older you Right yeah instead of an entire day that you have a headache, you, you split it into halves, and in this half, I had this. now I yes. can reset my energy and put it all into this.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's a great analogy, and that's exactly what I did. Now, having said all that, I was definitely not the best swimmer
0: mm-hmm. in
1: 1984. I was the best swimmer in 1980. I would have won five gold medals, but in 1984 mm-hmm. i I was hanging on by the. Skin of my teeth, man. It, I, I could have swam that race 10 times in the finals, and I would have lost nine of them.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. I, was, I was probably the fourth or fifth best swimmer. Mark Stockwell was better. Mike Heath was better. Perry Johansson was better. Um, and probably one, probably, I don't know, somebody else was probably better. I, but I know those three guys were better swimmers than I was. I was the oldest guy on the team. I was 25. Um, at that point I was the fourth oldest swimmer in history to win a gold medal individually. Uh, so I knew I was at the end of, end end of my rope, so to speak. Um, but again, as you said, strategically leading up to it, I followed the path of taking a risk, following the the directions of my coach, Mm -hmm. doing what I needed to do in the prelims, taking that chance, you know, could, could have been ninth. And uh it just everything paid off for that one race.
0: The nine out of ten thing, that's something I think about too. So uh different levels. The snappy quip about me that swim, swim can use is 2010 NCAA champion as a freshman. And I won by four one hundredths of a second in a field of Olympians that had all gone faster than year before. I remember that race. You were you were you were announcing it maybe. Um yep. I was like a second and a half, two seconds slower than the champion the year before but and and for a couple years it did bother me because it was like did I get lucky and I guess what I've come around to is you know if I had wheels I'd be a wagon if Mike Heath had been better than you that day he'd be a gold medalist you were better on that day so were you always full steam ahead about your goal I imagine for you because you had eight years leading up to this moment that there was no doubt in your mind, there was no conflict of any kind. But I have to ask, since you did bring up that nine times out of 10, you wouldn't have won it. What was your relationship to that gold um, once you got it? And since then?
1: Well, I I mean, I think I've always kind of been based on reality in my Mm -hmm. life. Uh, I'm not one. Um, to you know focus on fantasy too much so I knew the reality of the situation that this was my last chance that it was an outside chance but if I did everything right I look back on it and I don't want this to sound cocky but I I deserve to win that race yes is the way I, I I kept telling myself because I was the only swimmer in that final to have made the Olympic team In 1980 of any of their teams Mm -hmm. none of those other swimmers swam in the 1980 olympics Mm -hmm. um whether they made their team or swimming in it so they were all you know 20 21 years old and so for me i i kind of looked at it like you know i deserve this guys you'll have your chance in 88 maybe (laughs) But this is this is this is my last chance. So you you got to give it to me, please. Mm-hmm. I'm begging you guys to swim slow. <laughs> just this one race. Yeah. And uh, I mean that's what I was like pleading, pleading to God, just have them swim slow, okay? And then they could then have them all win later on. I don't want them to swim slow forever. I just want them to swim slow in this race. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I know that sounds so silly, but um, it's a very
0: human thing, though. I'm glad that it wasn't just ideas of greatness and you know no, no. there was also fear there was also doubt there was also gosh I absolutely hope, i hope my competitors maybe aren't on their best today like that was going through your absolutely.
1: head absolutely and and i think i think uh, most people not all but most will tell you that uh, they feel the same way i mean those that tell you that oh gosh i hope they swim at the very best i i mean god bless them i i i didn't I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know, my mind, I want him to swim slow. I'm begging God to have him swim slow. So, and have begging God to have me swim fast too, you know? Uh, so, um, but in the end, you know, you, I, I felt, you know, uh, when I walked out on the deck, uh, right before I just felt a total rush of calmness. Mm. I mean, just total, it was like this energy just that kind of went through me. Like oh, man, this is so cool. Uh, you know, I saw this crowd. The most people I ever swam in front of were 50, and now all of a sudden there's 15,000. And and they were all cheering for us, you know? Mm-hmm. I knew that the crowd just erupted, and there was one other American in the race, and so I just kept pretending he, they were cheering for me. Um, and I felt like, you know, I was kind of the sentimental favorite, too, you know, the sure. fact that, that I think most people in that crowd knew that, this was kind of the end of the run and that I had been on the team at 80 and kind of knew my story. So I really, at least I pretended that they were all cheering for me. So I I really felt an an energy that um, I certainly never felt before or since um, from, from a a crowd, you know, when I walked out on the deck. So that helped me a lot. I wasn't nervous. I was zero nervous when I walked out on the deck. Now in the, in the ready room, I was going to puke every (laughs) 10 seconds. Yeah. You know, Thank God there was a bathroom right around the ready room because, you know, I was going back and forth, peeing and pooping and, you know, you name it. I was, I was doing it. I couldn't keep anything down. But adrenaline. when I walked down on the deck. Yeah, adrenaline it, does yeah. not
0: discriminate. It wants everything
1: out of the body that's not efficient. It does. It does. And so, but when I walked on the deck, it was great. I was great. You were in that higher no plane fear. of
0: existence before the race even finished. You were, you were already yeah. there before you started. I um, never
1: had that. Never had that before.
0: And again, amazing thing about that crowd that was going nuts for you, that absolutely ballistic crowd that was going nuts for you. Jason Lezak was one of those people. And now you and then you got to call his 2008 uh, Olympic relay where he went the fastest split of all time doing the same best event as you. All right, that's the show. Part two will be coming next week. And if you can't wait till then, there is also some exclusive footage that I took just for Instagram that you can find at the Pro Corner Podcast Instagram page. Um, it'll be under the IGTV videos. It's a clip where Rowdy gives a couple tips for public speaking that he's learned throughout his broadcasting career. So again, uh, part two with Rowdy Gaines will be next week. And go to Pro Corner Podcast Instagram page. And of course, hit the follow button. <laughs> and uh, check out the exclusive clip that we took there. And then um, also rate, review, and subscribe, Pro Corner Podcast, review you your podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day, y'all.